This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to spend some time there this morning. For our guests, thank you for coming today. We're in a series about these days in which we live um, and how we as a church ought to respond to what's going on in our culture. How do we live faithfully for him when, when the vice, when we're in the vice, when the pressure's put on? First century Christians that we're going to look at in just a moment were constantly in the vice. And you, you look at and you read the book of Acts and you read the epistles and you have to ask the question, how did they not crumble? How did they not give up? How did they not run and hide and just, and just abandon their faith? And, and one big reason that we want to see today is that they found strength. In, and listen to me, listen to these two words, in regularly and consistently coming together. They found strength in that. The current trend in the, in the evangelical church and the church of everybody in Christendom in the United States, the current trend is different than that trend in China, different than the trend in other parts of the world. The current trend in this country is the trend of the, what we might call the vanishing community. What used to be regular church attendance in, amongst Christian people a generation ago was there. I'm, I'm in church at least 75% of the time three out of four Sundays. It's dropped down to now where it's, it's half or less than half. And people think that's regular, that's consistent. We're going to see that it's not. And that's going to leave in this time, in this generation, that's going to leave many in what I believe will be for them. And maybe this is for you. Maybe this is your one out of four Sundays. I don't know. But that's going to leave them in a very dangerous place the closer and closer we get to the return of Christ. Does the Bible say that? I believe it does. And we'll look at where it says that. Being devoted to belonging in the church is really about being surrendered to what truly matters. Now, it didn't take long before the first churches found that their newly discovered, newly found faith in Jesus Christ that not only promised them forgiveness and promised them eternal life, and we love those aspects of our faith in Jesus, but was also working changes in their lives that made them different from their past and made them different from their neighbors. And those early Christians often struggled because in their hearts, as in your heart today, if you're a believer in Jesus, lives the Holy Spirit. God himself abides in you, lives in you. And he was changing them. And often those changes weren't well accepted by those around them. And one of the basic truths of human nature, and this is true of every single one of us who are here today who are human. The, the, are you with me today? All right. Every single one of us who are here today who are human. Um, I thought that was funny. Is, is that we, we tend to fear, listen to me, we tend to fear that which we do not understand. Would you say that's true? We fear that which we do not understand, and that fear compels us sometimes to attack. That fear sometimes compels us to segregate ourselves away from those not like us. And Christ, who was in these new believers, and the changes he brought into their lives caused that kind of response among those who didn't understand Christ, why he came. 
They didn't understand the gospel. They certainly didn't understand this, this new, vibrant, living body called the church. They found it threatening. Well, believers found themselves, because of this change that's happening in them, they found themselves um, living, living these lives, and they found themselves losing their old friends. They're losing their jobs, many Christians, because their employers thought, well, now that you're a Christian, you might be sub- subversive in some way. There were threats of arrests because some thought them to be traitors to Rome since these Christians now claim Jesus to be their king and not Caesar. And it started, this reaction against the church started when Peter and John committed the great crime in Acts chapter 3 of bringing healing in Jesus' name to a man who had never walked. What a, what a terrible thing for them to do. And then they preached to a great crowd that gathered and told the crowd, hey, there is salvation in one name and one name only, and that's the name of Jesus. And Acts chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that about 5,000 men believed that day. 5,000 men believed in Jesus Christ, became Christians that day. Well, the next day, the authorities who heard about what was happening hustled Peter and John before them, brought them before them, a tribunal, and they, after listening to what they did, and here's they said, well, here's what we're telling you that you must do. You must never again teach in Jesus' name. And after their release in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, here's what we are told. They released, the authorities have said, we're telling you don't ever teach or preach in Jesus' name again. Verse 23, and after they were released, they went to their own fellowship and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They went immediately back, it says, to their own fellowship. What does that mean? They went to their own fellowship. That's not likely, it doesn't likely mean they went to a meeting and called the whole church together. Why? Well, we know from Pentecost, and we know from the second um, sermon that was preached, there are now 8,000 people who belong to the church of Jerusalem. It wasn't likely that they got on Facebook and sent out a real quick message to everybody in their Facebook groups at church meeting today at 1 o'clock. That didn't happen. So who is their own fellowship? They went to their own fellowship. The word fellowship here means one's own. They went to their own is what it literally says and means. They went to those who were, first of all, like them in faith. They gathered around them people they knew believed exactly like they did and would stand exactly like they had done. Quickly, they were finding out that their message of Christ wasn't going to be well accepted by the powers that be, and they were suddenly realizing that we didn't. They, I don't think they understood all the things that Jesus told them. But now it's beginning to make sense. They're finding out, you know, we really are different than most around us, and there's going to be opposition. You ever become a when you became a Christian? Did you suddenly think, boy, everybody will want to become a Christian now that I understand who Jesus is and I've received Him as my Savior and He's forgiven me of all my sins? My chains are broken. I'm free. I have eternal life. I, I'm just going to tell all my friends, and they're all going to just going to want, right after another want to become Christians like just like I have. And then you started to share your newfound faith, and they looked at you like you were crazy. Have you become some kind of a fanatic? Have you lost your mind? You really believe that Bible stuff? 
they discovered there's going to be opposition. So they went to those who needed to know what was going on in their lives, what the authorities had told them. My guess, and it doesn't say this, but this only, this makes a lot of sense to me, was that they gathered the other apostles with them. They went to their own. These are apostles, Peter and John. They gathered the other apostles, their closest friends. This is the connection group that Jesus had formed. And maybe there were a few more that came with them. But here was a meeting together, listen to me, of people who belonged to each other. That's who they went to. They had a tight relationship, Peter and John did, with these other men. And this relationship could be trusted. This morning, we're talking about the power of community. First point in your notes is this. The power of community is in belonging. There's great power in the fact that if you belong to the local body of believers, to the church, there's power in that group, in that community. It's in belonging. And Peter and John showed us that power. They went back to who they belonged to. Now, sometimes we have to ask the question, this was raised this week as we're talking about this message, what about those who are in the community, but they've decided they no longer want to be part of the community? You know, that happens every now and then, doesn't it? In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to the the local church as a body. And he talks about it as it's a physical body with feet and legs and arms and ears and nose and eyes and so forth. He said, it's like a body. Well, when you lose part of your body, I don't know if any of you have ever had amputation before, but that's got to be, I never have, but that's got to be uncomfortable. And especially if it's accidental in some way, I would think that's got to hurt. And then you realize whatever it is that you're missing, whether it be a hand or even a finger or a part of your foot or a leg or part of your leg or whatever it might be, all of a sudden you realize when you start to go about doing life, you realize how much you miss that part of your body, don't you? You know, I've, I've lost my right, and now I've got to learn to do everything left-handed. You know, now I've got to walk with crutches or maybe I've got to be in a wheelchair, whatever it might be. Now, now I, I can't get a driver's license because I only have one eye, whatever it might be. But you lose part of your body and it causes pain. It causes hurt. And it ought to hurt when someone walks away from the church. Hurt Paul when he talked about a fellow named Demas who had abandoned him. Demas at one time had been a trusted, valuable co-worker with Paul and with Luke. But at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, while sitting in a Roman prison awaiting execution, wrote these words to Timothy. And you can sense that this was painful to Paul. He said these words very simply, 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has deserted me. Now get why, though. This is what really had to cause Paul, Paul pain. Because he loved this present world. In other words, he loved this present world greater than he loved the kingdom of God. The world... The world that Demas heard me talk to the churches about, that I warned the churches about with its values that oppose Christ, that we read about here in Nags Head Church in Philippians chapter 3 and some other places last Sunday. This world that is opposed to Christ, Demas has left me because he loved that world. Turned his back. He abandoned his brother when his brother needed him. Some drift away from the church because of the lure of the world, like Demas, and they fall back into the old life. Some leave the church because they can't handle the truth. They can't handle the pressure that, of being in the vice. They can't handle what's going on in their lives opposed to what everybody else is saying to them out in the world. They can't deal with that. 
one of the guys that abandoned for a while, because I think for those reasons was uh, Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He was another who had dropped out. He dropped out when traveling with Paul and Barnabas on their first mission trip, and he went home. And then when they, Paul and Barnabas got ready to go on a second mission trip, Barnabas, says, Barnabas said, hey, let's take Mark again with us. And Paul said, no way. I'm not taking somebody who can't handle the pressure. I'm not going to take somebody who's not ready for the task. I'm not going to take somebody who hides under the porch rather than runs out with the big dogs. I'm not going to take him. He's not ready to go. And that caused Paul and Barnabas to divide and go different ways, doing the Lord's work, but not together anymore. But Paul's missionary partner, Barnabas, he was known as the encourager. Paul's partner, Barnabas, went after Mark, and he said, I'm not going to give up on him yet. I think, and you say, why did they do that? I was thinking, why did Paul say, nope, he's not going, and Paul just refused? Barnabas went out, and you know, I think that has something to do, where's Pastor Tom Lee? I think that has something to do with spiritual giftedness. Barnabas was gifted as an encourager. Barnabas probably had the gift of mercy. And Paul was a little bit different in his giftedness. Paul was very focused on what he was about and said, I don't have time to waste on this guy. Barnabas went after him. And he helped Mark turn around. And how do you know that? Well, later on, we read Paul writing in 2 Timothy 4.11, hey, by the way, bring Mark with you. For he is useful to me in the ministry. Mark had become very useful to the apostle Paul. He had turned around. We don't know why exactly Mark quit, but Barnabas rescued him. And Mark became a useful partner again in Paul's ministry. Now, let me ask you a question, Nag said church. If you're a guest, you can't really do this. But not today, maybe next Sunday, if you're back in your home church, you can do this. But Nag said church, let me ask you, let me ask you to do something. Ask you a question. Uh, Who do you know that's drifted away? Who's a partner in this congregation, but they've drifted away, dropped out of connection group, they drop out ministry team, and pretty soon you just rarely see them at all in a worship gathering. Who's been missing? I want you to look around the room. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you about 10 seconds and think about it. Who's missing that you used to see here on a regular basis? Who's missing? Let me ask you, will you be willing to be a Barnabas? Will you be willing to make a call and reach out? Will you be an encourager like him? I love, boy, what, what do I say to him? You say to him, hey, I want to talk to you about being, about missing, missing in action. Number one, we're missing you, but number two, you're missing out on a whole lot because you've not been there and you need to come back. And if you're the one, by the way, if this is your one out of four Sundays, if you're the one who's drifting, let me encourage you, don't wait for a crisis to come into your life to run back to the Lord's family because you're going to need them when that crisis comes. Don't wait for that to happen. Power and community because is belonging. Secondly, the power and community is when we pray together. If you're in Acts chapter 4, look with me at verse 24. After they were released, they went... Verse 23 says, to their own people, to the apostles most likely. Verse 24, and when they had heard this, when the, when the apostles and, and that group had heard this, they all raised their voices to God. When you raise your voice to God, what are you doing? Somebody tell me. You're praying. And they prayed together. 
They knew that they were now in the vice as a body of believers. The pressure is now on. How did they pray, by the way? What did they pray for? Let's keep reading. We'll read down through, um, down through verse 30. They said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? They're saying to God, God, this question has already been asked. We're asking it right now too, but this is already kind of in your mind, Lord. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod, Herod's the king in Judea, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, here's their prayer. Listen, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves, talking about themselves, grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. How did they pray? Real quick, some bullet points about their prayer so you can keep this and have this in mind. When you pray, they first of all acknowledge that God was in control. They acknowledge that he was in control, master, the one who made the heaven, the earth. Verse 28, they said to God about who he was, you have, you, your plan had, had predestined to take place. God, you're in control, not us. We want you to understand that we understand that. You're in control. Secondly, verses 25 and 26, they acknowledged that opposition was promised. They went back and quoted from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. Lord, the psalmist said this, and they're thinking in their minds, and Jesus told us this, this would happen. Opposition was promised, but we also understand the third thing they prayed in verse 27 was they acknowledged that the target of the opposition was not them. The target of the opposition was who? Christ. He's the target of the opposition. And then verses 29 and 30, they ask God for complete boldness. Help us to be completely bold. To be completely bold, 100% bold means you have 0% of what? Fear. Help us to be completely bold, Lord, as we share this message, as we proclaim the gospel. And look at the result. Sometimes God takes some time to answer his prayers, and sometimes he takes years, but this was immediate. When they had prayed... The place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message. How? With boldness. What did they pray for? Give us boldness. They went out from that place and began to speak the word of God boldly without fear. Power and community when we pray together. Do you know we have a prayer team that meets every Sunday morning to pray for our worship gatherings? We do. And they'd love to have more folks gather with them. You might be able to be on that team. And if you want to be on that team, let us know. And we'll get your information to the team leader, Randy Holcomb. He would love to welcome you to that. Do you know that our ministry teams gather as one before each gathering to pray? They all get together, assemble, usually over in the kitchen. And they get together and they pray. In our connection groups, our small groups time is given every meeting, every week, and our groups throughout the community to praying together. Did you know that we keep a prayer thread going constantly seven days a week? 
It changes every week, and we add new things and report new things, but every week in our Nags Head Church Partners Facebook group is a thread just about prayer requests. Why? Why do we do all that stuff about praying? Because we believe there is power in prayer. And one thing that prayer does when we pray together is it makes the church strong. Thirdly, I think this is three, and the power of community is when we are united. When we're united. Verse 32. Now the large group of those who believed. Large group as opposed to who? The small group that Peter and John had just met with. The large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind. Now that tells me right, that, right now, I don't believe that these people were Baptists. All right? They're a, they're, and I know some of you are afraid to chuckle, we're a Baptist church here in Nagsend. I don't know that they were Baptists because they were united. They're one heart and one mind. What is the old saying? United we stand, divided we, we fall. By the way, Jesus taught that in Mark chapter 3, verse 25. And then in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for the church to be in unity because then our witness, when we are united, Jesus said, your witness is going to be powerful to the world around us. In unity, Jesus said in that prayer in John 17, 21, he said, Father, make them one so that the world will know, will believe you sent me. Our unity is a great witness. There's power in that. By the way, isn't that why we're here, Nags Head Church? Isn't that why we exist? So that the world will know God has sent his son Jesus to be their savior. Unity is in our purposes. Unity is in our beliefs. Unity is in our working together for the goal of bringing people to Christ and helping believers take their next steps toward being like him. I met with 17 folks last Sunday afternoon upstairs in the loft. Folks that said, we're, we think we're ready to become partners in Nags Head Church. And then we went through our beliefs and went through some of our different things that we, we believe in, our statements. And we, at the end, we said, now, if you agree, come on and be partners with us. If you disagree, don't take another step. Help us f- help you find another church where you can be in agreement But it's very important that we be in unity in what we believe and in our purposes. Being of one mind, unity is in our elders as we make decisions. Being of one mind is as our elders lead. Unity is in our church and our following our lead. Again, those of you in the front row, if I was an elementary school teacher, I would put a star up by your name today. All right? Unity is how we follow our leadership. There's a power in a unified church. Then there's power. The power of community is when we care for each other's needs. The end of verse 32. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own. How many of you own things here in the church? Would you raise your hand? You own anything? Raise your, some of you really don't own anything. You don't have any clothes. So whose clothes are you wearing today? How many of you own something? Please tell me. Everybody owns something, right? No one said any of his possessions was his own. What that tells me is they were about to see they were the kind of people that would give someone the shirt off their back. Because it's not mine. Everything I have belongs to Christ. Nobody said all of his possessions were his own. Instead, they held everything in common. They shared. And the apostles were given testimony 
were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a, listen to this, there was not a needy person among them. Why? This is how we meet social needs according to the scriptures. Not through the government. It's to be done through the people of God. Nobody among them had need. Why? Because all who own lands or houses sold them. This is a voluntary act, by the way. Sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and then was distributed for each person's basic needs. Amazing church. They cared for one another's needs. They were, again, arrested, and as they spent the night after this, they spent the night in jail. God sent an angel to free them. He told them, this angel said, you get right back out there and proclaim Christ in public. And so they did. In the middle of the night, they got out, let out of jail. And when it was discovered the next morning, the authorities said, go get these two prisoners and bring them back. They went to the jail and said, hey, you know what? They're not there. They were gone. Where were they? They found them out in the temple, public place teaching in Jesus' name, and so they arrested them again. This time they were beaten. This time they were ordered not to speak at all in the name of Jesus again, and they, as they left the beating, look with me at chapter 5, verses 41 to 42. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders who had them beaten, They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing, hello, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored in behalf of the name, meaning the name of Jesus. And then every day, did they stop? They were beaten. Did they stop doing it? Every day in the temple complex, big gathering, Every day in various homes, small groups, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, the vice continued to be tightening on them. And before long, you keep on reading in the book of Acts, Stephen, who was one of the church's deacons there in Jerusalem, was stoned to death while preaching in Jerusalem. And his death brought a wave of persecution against them led by a rising star in Judaism named Saul of Tarsus. And this persecution caused many of the Christians in Jerusalem to scatter and leave the city. They went elsewhere. Many of them traveled to Syria. Think about how ironic this is. Many of these Christians traveled to Syria where they thought they would be safe. It isn't ironic. 2,000 years later, the Christians in Syria have either been killed or driven out by an opposition force opposed to Christ. Isn't that ironic? They first went to Syria, and now they're driven out of Syria today. Paul was sent with soldiers to Syria to round up whatever Christians he could find there. Paul go there and get them, bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. But on his way, you know the story. I hope he met the risen Christ. He was radically changed. And Paul, Saul, excuse me, the persecutor of Christians, suddenly became Saul, the preacher of Christ. And the persecution may not have stopped, but it was greatly lessened without Saul. If you look with me at chapter 9, flip over a few pages to chapter 9, verse 31. 
Ah, hearing pages of the Bible's turn is music to my ears. Verse 31, chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, that area right there, Galilee up north, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and the church did what? Increased in numbers. So the power of community does what? Next point, it brings us peace and encouragement. It brings us peace and encouragement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage one another, church, with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. 1 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, I solemnly charge you, proclaim the message, persist in it. He's talking to Timothy, whether, in, whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience in teaching. See, the message of the word from the preacher should include encouragement to the church, to the Roman church. You think about the church in Rome in the first century, centered in the capital, living directly under the reign and nose of the emperor. Paul said, Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction. That's that word for vice. Be patient in that tribulation. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction. There's that word again for being put in the vice. He comforts us when we go through these afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God comforts us so that we can comfort them. These were words of encouragement and comfort in tough times. Let me say to you, church, and you're gathered here this morning on, on a day, you know, it, a lot of, it'd been easy to say, you know, it's just too nasty outside. It's raining, the wind's blowing, mess up my hair. Some of you it took it right off your head, you know. Let me encourage, let me say how much you encourage me by your commitment to the church family. How much you encourage me as I walk around this building before the gatherings and I see folks involved in their ministry. How that encourages me by your service to our church family. We don't always see, by the way, a lot of you do ministry things that we don't always necessarily see. But we know that you do and we know that you're serving and it is indeed an encouragement to the rest of us. A lot of you parents in here this morning, you're encouraged by the folks who are with your kids right now um, in Calabunga Cove. You're encouraged by, you, I haven't looked at it that way. Please understand, you are encouraged by what they do. On the converse, I get discouraged when I look around and you're missing. Folks are missing. Uh, that's discouraging. And it may, I may not miss you for a while uh, with two gatherings and so many guests, it's easy not to know when someone's MIA. That's why, by the way, let me just say this. We're starting, started up small groups again this, this, month, this month. That's why it is so crucial that you be a part of a small group. Difficult to miss you when you're one of 10. 
I mean, it's easy to miss you when you're one of 10. It's harder to miss you when you're one of 250. Not so simple. In a small group, if you're missed, you'll be cared for, I hope, when you're in need. How many of you know where the the James River is in Virginia? Would you raise your hand? You ever seen the James River? If you took history when you were in elementary school, you know the first settlers there in a permanent English colony set up in Jamestown. They set up a settlement there right on the James River. And we, we're familiar with the James River because a lot of times we travel north, you know, if we go through, up through Virginia, we pretty much have to cross it somewhere. I first, I remember first seeing the James River for the first time when I was a seven-year-old boy. I saw it in Newport News, Virginia. In Newport News, Virginia, it's miles across right there, the old James River Bridge. It's miles across there, and large ships and barges travel can, on the James River. They travel up and down that thing. And there in that part of Virginia, as it flows out of the mountains, it becomes part of Hampton Roads, and there and then it empties right into the Chesapeake Bay, then empties right into the Atlantic Ocean. But I've also seen the James River near its source in the Allegheny Mountains of western Virginia. Where does the James River begin? I learned a lot studying about the James River this past week, but it begins when two rivers come together, the Jackson River and the Cowpasture River. Where they come together, where they meet, they form the James way up in the mountains in the Alleghenies. By the way, Cowpasture River doesn't refer to what you might and I might think of as cows. It was named by the early pioneers because of all the buffalo that were in the region. So you learned something else today, didn't you? Cowpasture River. That's where the James is formed. You can throw a rock across it. But it travels from that spot 348 miles through the Blue Ridge, through the Piedmont of Virginia, into Tidewater, and on its way to Hampton Roads and the Chesapeake Bay and ultimately the Atlantic Ocean, it's fed by 58 rivers and streams that dump into the James River in those 348 miles, 58 of them. Tributaries, we call them. They pour into another water. A good way to think of tributaries, because the words come from the same root, a good way to think of a tributary is that it's another river or a stream that contributes to the James. That's what tributes do. They bring their water, and as they pour their water into the James, it spreads and it becomes larger and larger, making it bigger and wider and deeper as it nears the bay. Tributaries don't drain the James River, they add to it, don't they? And you know, if you've traveled north through Hampton Roads, you've crossed the James River Bridge or gone through one of the tunnels, you know how large that river is there. Do you think 300, 400 years ago, whenever it might have been, that whoever first, or probably even many, many hundreds of years before that, do you ever think that whoever first came upon the source of the James River in the mountains ever understood that where they stood, at that little rocky stream where they could throw a rock across it, did they, you think they ever thought, one day this river will float aircraft carriers? One day cruise ships will exit out of this river and go out into the Atlantic? Do you think they ever, con- ever conceived that way up there in the mountains with that little trout stream that they found? One day... Ships 
from this river will carry coal around the world. Do you think they ever imagined that? Probably not. And the 58 streams that contribute to the James, and all 58 of them, starting somewhere themselves, likely as a spring somewhere, if they could think, would they have ever imagined what their little contribution would mean to the future of the James River and all the people who depend on it? You think they could imagine that? You see, it doesn't end with the James because the James ends, empties into the bay, which empties into the ocean. But imagine if all those tributary streams that contribute to the James, imagine if they were dammed up because local authorities were greedy for their water. Imagine that there was a horrible drought and they dried up. What would be of the economy that's enabled by the James in the port of Hampton Roads? What would happen if the James was dried up? What would happen to the largest naval base in America that's right there on the banks of the James? See, you and I who are part of Nagset Church are like those tributary streams. Our connection groups are like tributary streams. We're all funneling into this one body called Nagset Church. And Nagset Church is able to be a tributary to the worldwide family of God through missions and And being part of a church, as you are, a contributor through your ministry, through your giftedness, through your giving to one another, allows the church to be much more than an hour and 15-minute Sunday production. And you realize that life without it, when you realize who you are and who you belong to in the power of community, you realize that life without the church would become a perilous life. One way we celebrate the community that we have in the church is through communion. And it's easy to see because community and communion, you English scholars, come from the same root word, which means to hold something in common. When we observe communion, a reminder of the incredible price paid by Christ on the cross, it should be a reminder that I belong to the body of Jesus. I belong to the church. That's why Paul said to abuse communion, which might also mean to ignore it or avoid it, to abuse it, to take it wrongly, he says, is to abuse the body. And by the body, who is he speaking of? The whole chapter, the whole context is is the body of the church, that we are the body. You're abusing the body. The point of communion today is because that because of our common faith in Christ, we belong to and we need each other. Especially in the days ahead when the pressure is put on us by culture to conform to their values. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews told them. He said, and let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Get this now, not staying away from our meetings as some habitually do, but instead encouraging each other. And get this, and all the more. Be consistent, he was saying. Be regular. Be in your place. All the more when, as you see the day, speaking of the return of Christ, drawing near. Now, how many of you believe the return of Christ is nearer today than it was 2,000 years ago, all right? Anybody with any intelligence understands that. The writer of the Hebrews says, because of that, we need to be together. 
assembled together, gathering together. And these meetings, and the Greek word here means, the word for meetings here means the gathering together in one place. Exactly what we're doing here right now. This is what he's talking about. These meetings, they are something that you and I cannot survive without in these times. We need the encouragement we get from being together, from singing together, from serving together, from worshiping and praying together. And the closer we get to the day when Jesus comes, the more we need to meet together. Our ushers are coming right now to distribute the elements for communion, the cup and the bread. Let me say to those of you, as you're receiving this as being passed by, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you're welcome to participate. If you're unsure of your relationship with him, you're not sure that he is your Savior, then just kindly just pass it on to the next person, and no one will judge you for that. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare ourselves for this holy meal, this bread and this cup that remind us of your body and your your blood, may we also today especially be reminded, I, I do this because I belong. Not only to Jesus, I belong to his family. And it's important to me in these last days that I, that I really make the most of the community of the church to which I belong. For our guests here today who belong to other churches, who know Jesus as their Savior, we welcome them to enjoy this with us. For our folks today, God, I pray that this will be, maybe for some, an opportunity to say, today, Lord Jesus, I get serious about this. Because you're coming soon. In your name I pray. Amen. We'll participate all together in a few moments. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.